Well, it's good to be back in the pulpit bringing you the Word of God. Uh, it feels like it's been so long. I, we, we missed a week, of course, last week, so the, the weather. Uh, and that was fortuitous because I was sick anyway. So uh, if it was going to have to happen, it was, it was good timing. Uh, before that, Nicholas uh, brought the Word for us. Uh, so thankful uh, for you, brother. Uh, bringing the word uh, on the 31st, right? So yeah, this is my first time in the pulpit this year. So it's, uh, it's good to be here. Uh, and I'm privileged to bring you the word. This morning we are going to uh, embark on a new brief sermon series. Uh, if you remember, we, we finally finished John's Gospel. And so I've got a, a brief sermon series here for us where we're going to be looking at what does the Bible say about our money and our possessions? Now, when preachers talk about money, people's guards tend to go up and they get a little squirmish uh, whenever a preacher talks about money. I get it. I get it. There have been uh, numerous public failings of uh, various ministers who've exploited people for money. And of course, you have those uh, TV preachers buying private jets and asking for your money, promising that it'll be a seed and that, that God will bless you if you plant that seed. Uh, by the way, that's a bunch of garbage. Uh, don't give them a nickel, all right? That's your pastor telling you uh, that's, uh, yeah, save your money. Uh, invest it wisely, don't give there. Um, but we need to be careful with, with all the, the, the neg- negative examples of uh, abuses of money in, in uh, sadly, Christian ministries. We need to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater either on this because the Bible has a lot to say about money and possessions that we shouldn't ignore. It's, it's addressed in the Ten Commandments, Uh, According to Randy Alcorn, uh, author of The Treasure Principle, uh, 15% of everything Jesus taught in the Gospels had to do with our money and our possessions, uh, more than all his teaching on heaven and hell combined. So we should uh, pay attention uh, to what God's word has to say to us on this, uh, this, this topic And it's because there's such a fundamental connection between our hearts and our stuff. There's a connection between our hearts and our stuff. Now you may be tempted to check out on this series thinking this is an issue for you because you don't have a lot of money to give away anyway or to be foolish with. Uh, But you need to understand that this is an issue for both the rich and the poor. The rich never seem to be content, always thinking they need more. And the poor are tempted to covet and steal what they don't have. For both, it's a matter of the heart and not how much is in your bank account. So today, I hope to show you that it is the mercy of God alone that can break the chains that often our our money and our possessions uh, have wrapped around our hearts. And it's God's mercy that can break those chains. And so I hope to show you that this morning. So let's go to the scriptures, take out your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 7 to 14. If you need to use a pew Bible, you'll find today's text on page 1020. Once you're there, 
I invite you to stand with me if you're able out of reverence for God's word and as a sign that we stand under his authority and the authority of his word. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. By the way, we're talking about John the Baptist here. He said to the crowds, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he, commanded, or he answered them, uh, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. This is God's word. Let's pray. Merciful Father, may your word shine on our hearts this morning that we may see our hearts the way you do. Holy Spirit, convict us and draw us to the throne of grace this morning. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You can be seated. So here in, in uh, Luke chapter 3, we're introduced to John the Baptist and his ministry that prepares the way for Jesus. And verse 3 uh, tells us that he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of of sins. Soon crowds begin to gather and John addresses them in our text today in verses 7 to 14 and his message is simple and blunt. First he wants them to understand what repentance really means. Second John gives them a test to show them if their repentance is truly genuine and these will be the two main points of our sermon. So uh, we're going to look at understanding repentance, and then secondly, we're going to look at recognizing uh, its fruit. What is the fruit of repentance? Uh, Now let's begin by understanding repentance under our first point. Now there's there's really three things here that we need to understand about repentance. Uh, The need, the cause, and the meaning. So first, consider the need for repentance. Notice how John addresses the crowds in verse 7. He calls them a brood of vipers. Now, uh, today, if John had a PR consultant, he might uh, say, hey, John, you might want to tone it down a little bit. You're going to offend people. Uh, your, Your book deal might fall through if you keep calling people names like that, you know, uh, let's, let's just dial it back a little bit. Let's not offend anybody. 
now, it, it's also important to know that Jesus also said these kind of things, uh, but he said them to religious leaders uh, who he, he knew were uh, hypocrites and uh, the Pharisees, right? But here, John is saying this to what is likely a very mixed crowd of people. A diverse crowd, much like our gathering here this morning. Now, think with me for a minute. What would this term, I mean, is he really just calling people names or is there something more to this? What would a first century Jewish person, what would this, this image of a viper call to mind for them? For people who were steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, they would think of the serpent in Genesis 3. Satan took the form of a a serpent in the garden and deceived uh, Eve and Adam. So John is basically calling them, uh, by by calling them a brood of vipers, he's basically saying, hey, you're children of the devil. This is something Jesus also did in John chapter 8 when he told a group of Jews that they were of their father, the devil, and their desire was to do his will. This This is a hard truth to swallow. It's offensive especially to modern people who believe that, hey, we're all, just, we're all basically good people, right? You know, we're all doing our best to, to be good people. We're all basically good, right? Uh, recently, I, I came across uh, on social media uh, this, this post by Michael Gunger. I don't know if you're familiar with that musical group, Gunger. Uh, they, uh, they were Christian artists. Well, Michael uh, Gunger has since walked away from the faith and... Um, he, uh, I guess, deconstructed or whatever you want to call it these days. Well, he posted on social media that he is rewriting the words to that beloved hymn, Amazing Grace. Can you imagine that? He's rewriting the words to Amazing Grace. And in his comment, he posted some of the lyrics. In his comment uh, on the post, he said, A wretch like me? No thanks. And when one person commented uh, by saying, no need to fix what isn't broken, Michael Gunger replied, my point exactly, no need to fix what isn't broken. Me. I'm not broken. Uh, I don't uh, need grace. How how do you do that to amazing grace? It's not amazing anymore. It's not even grace anymore. Uh, if If you take that out. Now, the scriptures beg to differ with Gunger here. Uh, ever since Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden, all humanity has been broken in rebellion against their creator. Romans 3.23 reminds us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, he explains to him that those who oppose the gospel have been captured have been ensnared by the devil and captured to do his will. And because of this, John the Baptist explains to this brood of vipers that the wrath of God is coming. It's not anything we like to talk about, but it's reality. In verse 9, John tells them with urgency, the axe is now laid at the root of the trees. This is urgent. This is the reality for all who live apart from Christ. This is their need to flee the wrath to come. 
John wanted this crowd who came to him to be baptized to know that this is not just some nice religious ritual that good religious people do. They are not basically good people as Michael Gunger would have them believe. No, they're a brood of vipers in rebellion against the high king of heaven. And they will face his coming wrath unless they repent. And all people today are no different than this crowd. Just like them, we all need to repent in order to be spared from the wrath to come. This is the need. Now let's consider the cause for a moment. John asked the crowd in verse 7, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, he's asking them, why are you here? Why did you come to be baptized? What, what compelled you to come and to, and to be here to do this? The Apostle John answers this question quite clearly for us in John chapter 6, verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. See, the, the men yesterday at our men's breakfast, by the way, if you're a man and you missed out on that, uh, first Sunday of every month, I know yesterday was the second Sunday, we had to postpone it, but uh, wonderful time uh, in the men's breakfast. Uh, we discussed this a little bit, actually, this very topic, the fact that we are incapable of intellectually arguing anybody into the kingdom of God. Because humanity's core problem is not that we need more facts or evidence. Humanity's problem is that they reject the facts. They refuse to believe the truth. And so that, that, that uh, volition in us that, that actively suppresses the truth needs to be overcome. And, and this, this is what John says. It's the Father who draws us. It overcomes that suppression of truth in our hearts. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. So the reason this crowd has come to be baptized is because the Father has drawn them. But How? The Apostle Paul, in Romans 2, writes about escaping the judgment of God, and he says this, that it is God's kindness, his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not threats and warning and browbeating, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Don't miss this, because many people Get this backwards. Our repentance does not cause God to be kind to us. No, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Isn't that that beautiful? We don't earn his kindness by our repentance. He gives it to us freely and that draws us to him to repent. And what greater kindness could God have shown us than sending his son, Jesus Christ, to bear the wrath of God for us when he died on the cross and rose again? Divine 
kindness on this level should melt our hearts with, with repentance. It's important to note that at this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus hasn't yet been crucified and risen yet. So these Jews believe like the Old Testament saints did. They trust in the mercies of God who will forgive their sin. They just don't know how yet. Even though they don't have the full picture of how Jesus will accomplish this yet by the cross and the empty tomb, they are trusting in the mercies of God to forgive their sin. So today we have an advantage over these Jews because they could only see shadows of God's mercy to come through Jesus. Well, we have it today in 4K. And yet, even what they had was sufficient kindness to lead them to repentance. How much more should we flee the wrath to come today and run to Jesus in repentance? Now, the third thing we want to consider here as we seek to understand repentance is, is its meaning. In John, or not, in verse 8, rather, John uh, the Baptist cites a common objection raised by many Jews. Jesus also encountered the same objection in John 8. This objection is that God would spare the Jewish people from his wrath because of who they are. They're, they're the ethnic children of Abraham. They're part of the family tree of Abraham. God would never pour out his wrath on them. That's, that's the, the objection. God would never do that to us. We don't need to repent because God can't uh, be true to his promise and wipe us out. How could he be faithful to his promise to Abraham? God's promise to Abraham was that he would make his family into a great nation that would bring blessing to the whole world. But now notice how John responds to this objection. He tells them in verse 8 that God, God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. Now this is clearly hyperbole. He's exaggerating to make a point. But the message was this. God can make anyone a children, a child of Abraham. He can make anyone a child of Abraham. And this is what the Apostle Paul taught in his letter to the Galatians. Follow his train of thought here with me. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 and 9, Paul writes, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This means that it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter how good your resume is or who your parents are or what your family tree looks like. God can bless anyone along with Abraham by faith or by reliance on the mercies of God. Those are the sons of Abraham, the children of Abraham. It's by faith, not by blood, 
So what is the meaning of repentance? Simply put, repentance means turning. It's turning. Repentance is turning in your heart and in your mind to agree with God that you are a brood of vipers. It's agree, it's turning and agreeing. It's a turning from a reliance on yourself. Here, these Jews were tempted to rely on their, their family tree. Here, it's, it's a turning from a reliance on yourself and on your good deeds or your family tree. And the point is this, to be Jewish is no guarantee. And not being Jewish is no hindrance to receiving the mercies of God. Now, before we move on, let me pause here. Let me pause here and just plead with you. If you have not turned in your heart and your mind to agree with God about your sin and your need for his mercy, do so, do so now, in this very moment. Why not? John urged the people of his day with urgency. None of us knows how much time we have on this earth. Our lives could be taken from us at any moment, and then it will be too late. Don't wait. Repent by turning to Jesus and depending on his mercy to forgive your sins and to rescue you from the wrath to come. Now, at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, I thought this was a sermon series about money and possessions. We haven't talked anything about that yet. And you're right. But understand that we had to look at the mercy of God first because God's mercy and our attitude towards money and possessions are connected. So we've, we, we had to do that lay that groundwork of really understanding the mercy of God first. Because we couldn't look at the fruit before we looked at the root. Mercy is the root and our hearts toward money uh, is the fruit. And this is the word picture that John uses in verses 8 and 9. Trees and fruit. He tells the crowd in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with Repentance. Which is to say that when we depend on the mercies of God and not on ourselves to escape the wrath to come, it changes our hearts, which shows up in our actions. Our hearts are changed, which shows up in our actions. This is why legalism doesn't work, by the way. Because it's just a list of do's and don'ts without any real heart change. It's the mercy of God that needs to be the root of all true change. So now as we look at verses 10 to 14, we're going to see three different groups of people ask the same question. What shall we do? What shall we do? In light of the mercies of God, what shall we do? They want to know what kind of fruit grows on trees who've been shown mercy. In other words, what sort of things does a person do who is relying on the mercies of God? This is our second main point, which will answer this question by identifying the fruit of repentance. First thing I want you to notice is that each time John exhorts these different groups of people, there's three of them here, each time he exhorts them regarding their actions or their fruit, all three times it has to do with their money or their possessions. All three times. 
Now, there are certainly other types of fruit that should be seen in the lives of people who are depending on the mercies of God, but don't miss this. Don't miss this overwhelming emphasis on our attitude toward money and material things, our stuff. Now, as we look at these verses and these three groups of people, John explains that the fruit of repentance, he explains it from two different angles. One positively and the other negatively. First, positively. He tells the crowd, if you have two tunics, share with the one who has none. And if you have food, share that too. This is the positive uh, uh, admonition here. Share that too. Don't miss what's going on here. Notice the emphasis on sharing our abundance with those who are in need. John is telling us that we who have received the divine, abundant mercies of God should in turn show mercy to other people. And in this, we're, we're reflecting the very character of God who has shown us such great mercy. How can we not be merciful if we've truly come to know the mercy of God? Again, we have an advantage of knowing about the cross and the empty tomb here. But consider the fact that God gave his greatest treasure to meet our deepest need. When he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, if we've received mercy on that level, how could we not use our lesser treasures to show mercy to others? That's the first angle, the positive one. Now, the next two are negative. First, to the tax collectors, he says, don't collect more than you should. Don't collect more than you should. Tax collectors in the first century, you need to understand, in first century Judaism, uh, they were notoriously hated because of what they did. Uh, the other Jews despised them because they were considered traitors. They were, think about it, the, the Romans are occupying their land and here are their own uh, countrymen uh, signing up to collect taxes for them. Right? They're, they're doing their, the work of the enemy, essentially. And not only are they doing the work of the enemy, uh, but they're, they're taking more than they should. They're telling people, hey, here's, here's how much you owe in taxes and they're padding it to line their own wallets. And they knew that this happened and they despised them for it. Also negatively, John tells the group of soldiers, stop extorting money from people by threats, by false accusations. They abuse their authority and power to exploit and take advantage of the weak. And in both these groups, they were acting in ways that were merciless. The tax collectors through dishonest thievery and the soldiers by abuse of their power. John's point is this, you cannot, you cannot at the same time cherish the treasure of God's mercy and at the same time fail to show mercy to others. It's impossible. It's impossible. And notice what he, what, what he didn't do here. He didn't tell them to stop being tax collectors. 
or to give up your profession as a soldier. No, he, he's saying be a better soldier. Be a better tax collector, right? That wasn't the problem. It was their heart. Uh, their profession wasn't the problem. It was their hearts. Now, now notice uh, a, a positive exhortation here at the end where he says, be content with your wages. How does mercy make us content? The writer of Hebrews helps us out here. Take a look at Hebrews 13, verse 5, where the writer says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Notice the reason here that we can be content. It's because God God has promised never to leave you or to forsake you. Don't you see? If, if we have God and he literally owns the whole world and everything in it, we don't have to worry about having enough. We don't have to worry. We don't, we don't have to prove to ourselves anything by accumulating wealth because we already are welcomed and approved by the king of the universe. Do you see how the mercy of God begins to loosen the chains that our stuff has wrapped around our hearts when you begin to really meditate on the mercy that we've been shown? Mercy makes us content. Now as we wrap up, look down with me at verse 18. We didn't read this earlier in the text, but here Luke tells us that with many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people. With many other exhortations, he preached good news. Good news. So I want to wrap up today by answering this question. How is it that these exhortations from John are good news for us today? How is this good news? There's at least three ways that this is good news for us. First, John has given us something that we can look at in our lives, a test, if you will, that tells us if we are healthy, born-again trees that are relying on the mercies of God or not. How do we know if we're really uh, relying on the mercies of God? Well, is there fruit in your life that is merciful? Are you, and this is, this is sober reflection time, you know, Later today, throughout this week, ask, ask the Lord, ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart. Am I a merciful person? You know, do I show mercy to others? Or are the chains of my stuff wrapped so tightly around my heart that my fists are clenched tight and I'm, I'm a miser? You know, Ask yourself that. Ask the Lord to show you that. First John uh, chapter 2, verse 3, John writes, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So uh, obedience in this area is, is further evidence to us that gives us wonderful assurance that we have, in fact, been born of God. So we can, we can look at that fruit in our lives and rejoice not because we did it, but because the mercy of God is working in our lives and we can praise God for it. So that's the first way that these exhortations are good news. They can give us assurance, beautiful assurance. 
The second way this is good news for us is when we fail this test of self-examination, if we find that there's little to no evidence of mercy in our own lives, this should drive us to the mercy of God to receive forgiveness and help. That's good news. When you, maybe this week you'll find that you look at your life and, and you're, you're struggling to find any merciful fruit in your life. Praise God for that. May it drive you to the throne of grace to receive mercy and forgiveness and help. Thirdly, these commands are good news because they bring us joy. They lead to joy. Whenever we do what God says, there's more joy in our obedience than there is in our rebellion. So this is good news. This is giving us information for our joy. John teaches us, or Jesus rather, teaches us in John chapter 15 that when we keep his commandments, it leads to the fullness of our joy. This is good news. So it is faith in God. It is reliance upon his great mercy that transforms our hearts. It changes how we view and how we handle our money and our possessions. God's mercy makes us merciful. Are you merciful? If so, give thanks to God for this. And if not, run to him and receive his mercy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the mercy of God this morning. We thank you that while we were a brood of vipers, Christ laid down his life for us. Bearing the full weight of the wrath of God for our sin. We ask that you would forgive us, Lord, for the lack of mercy in our lives that we show to others. And we ask for the Spirit's help to make us more merciful. May the Spirit remind us of the mercy of God that makes us merciful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.